just five days ago, January 28th, 2014, a missed forecast quickly turned into a metropolitan nightmare. Local and national weather predictors anticipated a light dusting of snow in the Birmingham area, but because of unusually cold temperatures in this part of the country, small white snowflakes quickly began covering everything in sight, cars, buildings, grass, trees, and roadways, and combined with ice that was the result of initial snow melting and then refreezing, and two inches of snow all over the ground in a matter of an hour or two left thousands of drivers stranded on major roadways in what has become known as Winter Gridlock 2014. And many have pointed the blame at certain people for this incident. Some certainly, as you can imagine, have blamed meteorologists. Others have blamed panicked drivers or inexperienced drivers. Some have perhaps blamed law enforcement personnel or even school board administrators for the aftermath and the outcome of Tuesday's storm. But missing the forecast is nothing new. People have been missing the forecast for a long, long time, and not just when it comes to weather. In fact, the masses missed the forecast on something far greater and more important than the weather. The masses missed the forecast when it came to the kingdom of heaven or the kingdom of God. The Jews in Jesus' day were anticipating the arrival of the kingdom of God on earth through God's anointed king, through God's anointed Messiah. And when he showed up, Generally speaking, they had missed it because they had failed to see the proper forecast. I want to invite you this morning to turn with me in your Bibles to to Matthew chapter 13, beginning in verse 31. Matthew chapter 13, and if you don't have a Bible, this can be found in the Pew Bible on page 794. And I would encourage you to follow along as we read Jesus' shocking description of the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven in his day. And by kingdom of God, I mean what I believe Jesus meant when he used the term in the New Testament. The rule and the reign of God in the lives and over the hearts of his people. The rule and the reign of God in the lives and over the hearts of his people. Now God's kingdom is certainly not limited to his people. It is much broader than that. God is... God over all, he is king over all, he's ruler over all, but, but his kingdom is most obvious, most noticed in the lives of his faithful followers. And so look with me at Matthew chapter 13, and to kind of set the context, to set the stage, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, had arrived on earth, and he had grown into a young man who became an adult man, and he began teaching the crowds. And through his 
teaching and his miracles, the attention of the crowds was caught in first century Palestine. Crowds began to flock to him on certain occasions. And as you can imagine, they recognized that there was something spectacular about this man. There was something significant about this particular individual. And so they were waiting and expecting God's kingdom somehow, in some way, to explode on earth. Making a clear distinction between those that are part of God's kingdom, those that are God's people, and those that aren't. They anticipated and waited for something to happen has happened centuries before under the leadership of God's anointed king, King David. They were waiting for, for conquest, for political freedom from Rome, for, for vast success under God's anointed king's leadership clearly making a distinction between them and everyone else. And it was at that point that everyone would look to them and and see the greatness of their victory and successes on earth and, and look to their God as the only true king. And so imagine what this Jewish audience expected when Jesus shows up and he begins teaching and he says, the kingdom of heaven is like what the kingdom of God is like. In fact, in Luke's account of this very same passage that we're going to read this morning, he begins with a rhetorical question. What is the kingdom of God like? What shall I compare it to? So imagine the anticipation. They're waiting to hear what is the kingdom of God like? Is the kingdom of God like a a mighty hurricane out over the ocean with, with great waves conquering everything in its path? Or is the kingdom of God like a sunrise and a sunset extending as far as the eye can see to the east and as far as the eye can see to the west? Or is the kingdom of God like Mount Everest, higher and mightier and stronger than every other kingdom in the world? And yet, look at what Jesus says in Matthew chapter 13, verse 31. He told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. A mustard seed? Really, Jesus? The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. And you can see a picture on the screen of of a mustard seed in the palm of someone's hand? Perhaps the smallest seed that was used for planting in the first century Palestine? The mustard seed was proverbial for minuteness. And so the crowds are waiting. They've been waiting for Jesus' response. The kingdom of God, the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. Imagine their response. Wait a minute. This is not our guy. This is not the one that we've been waiting on. We've been watching this man, hoping that he is the Messiah, hoping that he's God's servant to lead us and and to carry out the kingdom of God on earth. And, And now we have no hope at all through this guy because he says God's kingdom is like a mustard seed. 
We keep trying to flock to him. And, and he keeps saying things that make us all question his identity and, and scatter and leave him, abandoning him. But Jesus wasn't saying that the kingdom of God is just like a mustard seed. In fact, he was saying that it's like the situation here that he describes. Verse 31, he told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed, which a man took and planted in his field. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree, so that the birds come and perch in its branches. And so through this comparison, through this parable, Jesus was teaching that though small in its beginnings, the kingdom of God will have universal reach. Though small in its beginnings, the kingdom of God will have universal reach. So the crowds, they're waiting. They're waiting for God's anointed servant God's anointed king that would deliver them from oppression and and give them success, give them victory under under the rule of God on earth. Instead, God comes to them as a baby boy born into a lowly family, into lowly circumstances, laid in a feeding trough because there's no room for them in the end. Born into a family that comes from the unimpressive place of Nazareth. So unimpressive that when Philip goes and tells Nathaniel that they found Jesus of Nazareth, the Messiah, Nathaniel's response is, Nazareth? Can anything good come from Nazareth? This is the way that God chose to operate. Perhaps this comparison would be similar to saying the kingdom of God or the kingdom of heaven is like a a tiny white snowflake that fell from the sky, but rather quickly it shut down an entire city and much more. The small in its beginnings, the kingdom of God will have universal reach. God's ways are are often not like our ways and our expectations. Most often, He doesn't act in flashy ways or, or forceful ways that catch everybody's attention or that, that even meet our expectations. But His intended purposes will be accomplished. Those small and, and seemingly insignificant at times, God's ways will be carried out on earth. Look back at verse 32. Though it is the smallest of all seeds, yet when it grows, it is the largest of garden plants and becomes a tree so that the birds come and perch in its branches. So this tiny mustard seed, when it's planted in the ground, given time, it grows to a, a garden plant that is several feet tall, offering shelter and shade and protection to birds all around. And this is This is a picture that's used several times in the Old Testament to describe the kingdom of God. And and one such place in Ezekiel chapter 17, it's used to describe the ideal future 
of God's people in his kingdom. So listen as I read from Ezekiel chapter 17, beginning in verse 22. This is what the sovereign Lord says. I myself will take a shoot from the very top of a cedar and plant it. I will break off a tender sprig from its topmost shoots and plant it on a high and lofty mountain. On the mountain heights of Israel, I will plant it. It will produce branches and bear fruit and become a splendid cedar. Birds of every kind will nest in it. They will find shelter in the shade of its branches. All the trees of the forest will know that I, the Lord, bring down the tall tree and make the low tree grow tall. I dry up the green tree and make the dry tree flourish. I, the Lord, have spoken. I will do it. The kingdom of God initially In God's timing, through God's ways, carried out through God's servant, appears very small in its beginnings. But it will have universal reach. And one day, there will be a great multitude of which no one can count. From every nation, tribe, people, and language standing before the throne and before the Lamb wearing white robes and waving palm branches in their hands and crying out in a loud voice, salvation belongs to our God who sits on the throne and to the Lamb. Revelation chapter 7, verses 9 and 10. The same Lamb of God that was born to a young virgin peasant girl and laid in a manger. And the same Lamb of God that was arrested and beaten and crucified on a cross as a criminal was small in its beginnings. The kingdom of God will have universal reach. And in order to enforce, reinforce this point, Jesus then tells another short parable. Verse 33, he still told them another parable. The kingdom of heaven. Is like yeast that a woman took and mixed into about 60 pounds of flour until it worked all through the dough. And so Jesus uses another comparison, another image, tells another parable that his audience would have readily understood, particularly the women in his audience in that day, that would have known that, that yeast or leaven was used all the time, constantly, to mix into to batter, to dough. It was used to to allow the dough or the batter to rise so that the bread would rise when it was cooked. I want to pause right there and just offer a reminder that, that images in Scripture, even images that are used in various places coming from the lips of Christ, don't always refer to the same thing. We've already seen this. We've seen that in the parable of the sower, the the seed represented the word of God. The word of God that was scattered on the various types of soil. The parable of the weeds, the seed didn't represent the word of God, but the, the seed in that parable represented the people of God and the kingdom of God. We see this also in scripture where the devil, Satan, is 
referred to as a lion. First Peter chapter 5, 8. But then in Revelation chapter 5, Jesus is referred to as the lion of the tribe of Judah. And I say all that to say that, that some interpreters, some teachers, some readers of the Bible simply equate all images to the same comparison, the same explanation, and, and deduce some, some faulty interpre- interpretations of the Bible, which has led to some stating that in this parable, because in other places, yeast or leaven has negative connotations to say that, that the yeast or leaven in this parable refers to, to individuals that have allowed corruptions to come into the church. Understanding this to mean that the dough or the batter represents the people of God, the church, and and the yeast comes in and works its way all throughout. And so these are people, and particularly some interpreters, understanding this to be the Roman Catholic Church. And, and think of all the ramifications of a, a statement like that. But thinking of certain leaders in the church bringing corruptions into the church. All that to say, that's a faulty interpretation of Scripture. That's not what Jesus is saying here. What Jesus is saying is very similar to what he said in the first comparison. He's saying that though unimpressive in its beginnings... The kingdom of God has transformative power. Though unimpressive in its beginnings, the kingdom of God has transformative power. Now Jesus used, we've seen this uh, in, in various parables, Jesus used all sorts of images, everyday images, in order to communicate spiritual truth. And, and these images that he used in his various teaching scenarios through parables, the truths that he was communicated are consistent with his direct teaching in other places in Scripture. In Luke chapter 17, we read that once on being asked by the Pharisees, Jewish religious leaders, when the kingdom of God would come, Jesus replied, the coming of the kingdom is not something that can be observed, nor will people say, here it is, or there it is, because the kingdom of God is in your midst. In other words, God's ways, God's timing, God's purposes are not always consistent with our expectations. The kingdom of God, the ways of God, the purposes of God produce disproportionate results compared to their small and seemingly insignificant beginnings. But just because his ways are are different than our ways doesn't mean that he doesn't know what he's doing. Doesn't mean that he's not going to accomplish the purposes that he desires. And the kingdom of God spreads as people of God began to understand and believe and receive the message of God. And then the Spirit of God begins to do a work of transformation in their lives that further causes the message of the kingdom to spread. You see how that works? It seems unlikely that the church would evangelize the whole world, though it's what we're called to do, just as it seemed unlikely. You can imagine that that Jesus would use 12 ordinary and uneducated men to establish churches across the Roman Empire in the first century. But 
But the principle of Scripture here and elsewhere is that God's purposes will not fail. His plans, His kingdom will be accomplished in His timing and in His ways. Who would have thought that that Christianity today would be spreading and growing in places that are most adamantly, outwardly opposed to Christianity. Whereas Christianity in the church seems to be declining in Europe and in North America. It's spreading like wildfire in the underground church of China and in India and in much of Africa. Because God's ways are often different than our ways. And very quickly, let's finish this passage of Scripture before drawing conclusions and offering implications. But verses 34 and 35, Jesus spoke all these things to the crowd in parables. He did not say anything to them without using a parable. So was fulfilled what was spoken through the prophet. I will open my mouth in parables. I will utter things hidden since the creation of the world. The King of kings, the Lord of lords, the almighty Savior, God in the flesh, had arrived on earth And he didn't come with loud trumpets. He didn't come with a host of armies. He didn't ask for a large platform to to speak God's ways. Nor did he seek to go before earthly kings and other men of influence in order to, to convince them of God's ways in order to spread the truth among the masses that way. Rather, he... He came and he lived among the common people for over 30 years and he taught through parables, pithy, earthly stories and comparisons to to communicate oftentimes in subtle ways the eternal and significant truths of God in a way that would reveal the truth to the faithful, causing them to desire to understand and to know more and at the same time, disclose the truth from the faithless. Jesus Christ is God's final revelation on earth, yet the masses failed to recognize Him. So in summary, we might say that this particular passage of Scripture teaches us that although the magnitude of God's reign is often unnoticed, His kingdom will be universally known. Although the magnitude of God's reign is often unnoticed, His kingdom will be universally known. I think I may have failed to read point three, did I? Jesus' method of teaching, referring to verses 34 and 35, Jesus' method of teaching is consistent with the ways of God's kingdom. Jesus' method of teaching is consistent with the ways of God's kingdom. Although the magnitude of God's reign is often unnoticed, His kingdom will be universally known. Kingdom business is not the first thing to make the news today. In fact, kingdom business, referring to kingdom of God business, rarely makes the news today. It's not near as catchy as arrests and breakups and disasters Trends and products. 
But it will be one day universally known. And God will have the final word. Don't you worry because even though the kingdom of God is often unnoticed in the world today, His kingdom will one day be universally known. So how should we respond to this truth? What, what's in this for us? How should this affect the way that you and I live from day to day? Three implications. Number one, live in light of God's reign. Live in light of God's reign. Although the masses and the world fail to recognize the true king, Jesus Christ, he is the one on the throne. His kingdom is the one that will last forever. And let's live in light of that reality, live in light of that truth. Many of us spend far too much chasing after temporary things that have no eternal significance. But let's spend more time and more energy chasing after things that have eternal significance and cultivating a relationship with the one who does reign, the one who does rule, and the one who will rule for all of eternity. So live in light of God's reign. Number two, remain faithful despite worldly opposition to the gospel. Remain faithful despite worldly opposition to the gospel. Generally speaking, the world, and we've already said this, the world opposes the message of the kingdom, opposes the ways of the king. They're not flashy enough. They're not forceful enough. They're not obvious enough. And because of that, it's easy for the rest of us to frequently be tempted to think and to live and act in ways that oppose the message of the king. In fact, even our good Christian efforts, if they're not done for the right reasons and the right motivation, can become sinful. And as much as your pastor, as much as I want us to, to accomplish and fulfill all of the 2020 vision possibilities, goals that I presented to you last week, our first task, our primary task, our foundational task is to be faithful, to be found faithful as people of God before the King and to glorify and exalt the name of Christ. That is first and foremost. So remain faithful despite worldly opposition to the gospel. And thirdly and finally, submit to the Spirit's transformation in your life. And God may use you to expand His kingdom. Submit to the Spirit's transformation in your life. And God may use you to expand His kingdom. God often uses the small, the unimpressive, the lowly, the seemingly insignificant to carry out His purposes and His ways in the world. God can and may use a professional athlete, a politician, a Hollywood star, a successful and prominent businessman or woman. But most often, God simply uses humble men and women, boys and girls that are found faithful to Him Submitting to His Spirit's work of transformation in their lives. It doesn't take a large platform to expand the message of the kingdom or to proclaim the message of the kingdom. It 
simply takes a humble and obedient heart. It takes knowing the Lord and befriending some lost people for the purpose of sharing the message of the kingdom, the gospel of Jesus Christ, salvation by grace through faith in Christ with them. So submit to the Spirit's transformation in your life and God may use you to expand His kingdom, a kingdom that often goes unnoticed in this world, but a kingdom nonetheless that will be universally known. Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for this day and every day. Lord, we thank you for the opportunity, the privilege, the blessing of knowing you and being right with you through the bloodshed of Jesus Christ. The privilege of being called your children, your people. People who are part of your eternal, everlasting kingdom. Lord, we thank you for that. We praise you for being the great king. Lord, the great I am. The king of kings, the one who holds the world in his hands. Lord, we praise you for who you are. Lord, I pray that that you would challenge each of us this morning, today, to to respond to who you are, Lord, to confess sin in our lives to offer up adoration, praise, obedience to you because you alone are worthy. Lord, we thank you that despite circumstances in this world, despite trends in this world, despite opinions of this world, you are in control. Lord, help us to live in light of your kingdom today, tomorrow, this week. And it's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.